Hello and welcome to the Black Country Living Museum podcast, the show where we dive into the history of the Black Country, discover stories from the past and have some fun along the way. Today we're going to talk about Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria was the second longest reigning monarch Britain has ever had. She was on the throne from June the 20th, 1837 until her death on the 22nd of January 1901. That's nearly 64 years. She was really popular among the people of Britain, with many people having pictures of her in their houses. It might seem a bit strange that I mention this, but at the time, photographs were a recent development and called daguerreotypes, and for people to have them in their homes was a great, would have been a great honour for Queen Victoria. And it also might seem strange that we chose Queen Victoria as a topic for black country history, but believe it or not, she did visit twice during her reign. The first was an interesting event. It happened when she was 13 years old and she passed through by train. She was so offended by the sight of the black country that she actually closed her curtains on the carriage as she passed through and wrote in her diary, the country is very desolate everywhere. The men, women, children, country and houses are all black. And she added, but I cannot by any description give an idea of its strange and extraordinary appearance. Not the most flattering way of talking about the black country, as you can imagine. Her next appearance in the black country was a happier one. Uh, It happened years later in 1866 and was her first public appearance since the death of her husband, Prince Albert, in 1861. She came to the black country because they constructed a statue of Prince Albert. Today we know it locally as the Man on the Oss. You can find out more about this in our Adventures Through Time episode, which we'll be playing later on uh, during this podcast. Um, But something that is not actually mentioned in that episode is the enormous amount of effort that went into showing off what the black country had to offer. Now, as the Queen came from the railway station through the town, and she was watched by a lot of uh, people, huge crowds turned out to see this, she passed through six arches that were created to show off what the black country had to offer. And it was described really well by the London Illustrated News. I'm just going to read out this quote for you. So the first arch consisted of coal and iron, denoting the staple products of the district which Her Majesty had honoured. The coal had been procured from the round oak works of the Earl of Dudley and was a portion of a ten-yard seam which Staffordshire was famous for. The arch was surrounded with trophies in the shapes of miners' pickaxes. A few yards further on was a huge pillar of coal over 40 feet high, some of the blocks of which weighed over three tonnes. Two structures uh, were composed of over 100 tonnes of coal, so it would have been an enormous effort to get these things in place and actually build them. Uh, One of the other arches was composed of hardware goods that were made in the black country, so this was things like trays, um, vases, shovels, tools, any type of thing that was made in the black country went into these huge arches that the Queen would have had to go through, so it was a really big undertaking by the people of um, of the borough. So the people of the black country went to an enormous amount of effort to make her feel welcome. And as it says in our video, she was so pleased that she actually knighted the mayor on the spot, which is quite a cool thing to happen for the mayor. Now today, to help us learn a little bit more about Queen Victoria is our researcher, Nadia, who helped out for this episode. Hello, Nadia. Hello. 
Now, I've got a couple of questions for you. Um, the first one of which was, when Queen Victoria first came through the Black Country, she came by train, and she was supposed to be 13 years old. Do you actually think that the common opinion that she shut the, um, the, shut the blinds was true? And if she did do that, why did she do that? Was the Black Country really that bad? Interesting question. Whether she pulled down the blinds or not, on the one hand, I think it's worth considering the fact that some people didn't hold the highest opinion of the black country. It seems quite likely that she did indeed pull the blinds down. On the other hand, her diary entries are really descriptive. I think it sounds like she was captivated by the scene rather than repulsed by it. As she looked onto these industrial landscapes, perhaps like things she'd never seen before or imagined even existed, she wrote about them. So she said things like it was like another world, that on the one hand it was perhaps dreadful, but it was also strange and extraordinary. Don't you think that sounds like she's captivated rather than, you know? Yeah, it does in a way. I mean, the black country must have been a really strange place for people to come to if they'd never seen anything like it. So if, if you've come from London, you might have seen a little bit of industry, but probably nothing on a scale of what we had here. That Would that be fair? I think that's probably fair, especially from the perspective of a royal... You know, I can't imagine you get much of that in Buckingham Palace or... Well, well can you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's also important to consider the reasons for taking the trip. Yeah. So her mother had organised it. She was the Duchess of Kent and she'd organised it as part of an educational tour, um, which actually the king wasn't that happy about. He was worried about, you know, what could happen on this journey. But nonetheless, it went ahead... So I'd imagine that the Duchess, surely, would have been encouraging her to look at these scenes if she was meant to learn from them. Uh, I think, finally, have a Google of Queen Victoria pulling the blinds down. What you'll find, that it's claimed that she pulled down the blinds in a number of places, Bath to Newcastle to Wolverhampton. I would perhaps put this down to a common myth rather than something that definitely happened unless she went around with the blinds down all the time. Yeah, fair point. Uh, also, I mean, in all fairness as well, looking at some of the pictures of her that we that we do have, she doesn't always look like the cheeriest of women. She she's got that very much that British stiff upper lip, grumpy resting face. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's an element there of uh, how one would want one's public to perceive oneself. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. The last one then is probably a little bit more of a sadder note for her then. So when she came the second time around and the black people of the black country went to all of this effort for her, was it really the first time in five years that she'd been out in public to one of these, I suppose what we call it today is one of the royal events? So, for example, if you've got William and Kate going to see mm -hmm. someone, we call that a royal event. Was this the first one that she actually did after that? Yeah, that that's right. So she'd entered into a really long period of mourning and she actually remained in that until her death. So this was a state she was living in for a very long time. And Wolverhampton, she chose this as her location for her first public event for the specific reason that she felt Wolverhampton had treated her with kindness and respect. And, you know, she'd seen that they were building this statue and she was actually consulted on it to such an extent that she was invited to the artist's studio to see the statue, um, the sculptor being Thomas Thornycroft. Um, 
It's also the fact that the members of the council went down to London to invite the Queen to the unveiling. You know, they went to... It's partly etiquette, but equally, nonetheless, they'd gone to evident efforts to involve her. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it was a mere nine days away on the one hand, so it's short notice, you might argue. Uh, But on the other hand, they went to that effort. And that's perhaps part of the reason why she re went for Wolverhampton's offer, perhaps compared to other cities. Um, And obviously there is the kindness that Wolverhampton showed upon the death of Prince Albert. Um, The fact that they'd made the statue, the fact that widows of Wolverhampton had written her a personal letter saying, you know, we feel your pain. Yeah, Yeah, we understand. At the time, she had actually declared that she... Apparently, who knows if it's another myth, I guess... (laughs) that she, if she ever attended another public function, it would be Wolverhampton. Oh, well, okay. Nice. So she obviously thought well of the area as well for for going through so much effort for her. That's brilliant. Right. Now, that brings us to the end of our discussion about Queen Victoria. So obviously she meant a lot to to the black country for them to go to that much effort. Uh, I mean, constructing those arches alone would have taken a lot of time a lot of money, a lot of effort. So it was really nice that she did come out um, from her period of mourning. And it was a really special occasion that, that she came to the black country. Now, we want to talk about something a little bit different. And um, the next segment is what I've decided to dedicate to strange things that happened in the past that don't happen today. Uh, so last week, we, or last episode rather, we talked about health and safety in the black country and we had people falling into lime kilns and getting burned alive which is not the most cheery of subjects um but today i wanted to talk about things that you could buy over the counter back then that you couldn't today i want to talk about the chemist shop um so do's chemist is on site and there are a lot all sorts of concoctions and bottles and things like that in there not all of them have got ingredients on but some things that we know for a fact were sold um Over the counter, believe it or not, you could buy things like arsenic and cyanide, which are not the nicest things to to ingest in your system. Um, So so these were actually medicines in some way, weren't they? Um, And I've been told, I don't know how true this is, that people actually used the arsenic to poison their husbands. Which is a story that is told so many times in some of the events that we've done. But I I just wanted to get your opinion on that. Do you think it was something that happened fairly regularly? Or at least enough for us to know about? (laughs) I mean, yeah, indeed. Regularly enough for us to know about. I mean, there's no denying that people poison people with arsenic. I think there's also accidental poisonings as well, where people perhaps didn't realise what they were doing. But nonetheless, yeah. Angry spouses and alike <laughs> would try and find some arsenic and poison people. And was, you could buy it over the counter. Without, yeah, you could. Without, uh, well, I suppose today we'd need a prescription if we were buying something like like that. If there was something that was known to be poisonous, we would need a prescription in order to buy it. Mm-hmm. But equally, rules did change over time. So essentially, they did realise there was unreg- a lack of regulation. Yeah. So they tried to put systems in place, which... Obviously, the majority of diligent pharmacists followed, which members of the public followed. However, there were occasions where things went awry or people lied. Yeah. And that's 
there's a case of uh, Fanny Burgess, which I read about, and essentially that's how she got around it. She she lied. She put a fake name into the register when she got the arsenic. She, she claimed it was for cleaning, I think. So she was using it for cleaning, not killing her husband, yeah. shockingly. She didn't admit that. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. And she obviously, and she also um, procured the lethal dosage from different places as well. So she went to the pharmacist, but she also got it from via her neighbour, I think it yeah. was. And, so yeah, she found the, ways around it. The equivalent of going to lots of different shops, so people didn't really know what you were up to. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, on that as well, as a, as a as another thing, they also used poisons to colour sweets in the sweet shop. Um, from what I've heard. So um, some of the ones that I've got written down here is stuff like coal tar, lead, copper, and even mercury that would give sweets different colours. And in a sweet, it wouldn't necessarily cause too much damage if you only had a small amount. But obviously, if children did, were buying a lot of sweets, then it could actually lead to death. So basically what you just said is is right that there was a very severe lack of regulation in what people could sell and it wasn't until later on and people started to pay attention to the causes of deaths and uh, actually paying attention to what people are putting into things that these regulations came out and we now have the standards that we do today where hopefully we won't die if we buy some sweets heaven for fend yeah <laughs> all it will do is rot our teeth instead which i'm very happy about so now that uh, we've gone through that, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have a very quick listen to our episode of Adventures Through Time. So this is our series all about two children that visit the museum and get transported back in time uh, to see the events and learn about how they happened as they unfold them in front of them. Adventures Through Time. Queen Victoria visits the Black Country. Black Country Live Museum is a pretty cool place to find out about the places we've come from. And not just the places, it's great to find out about the people behind our history too. Like the families that used to live in these back-to-back houses. Hey, there's the guide, over by the front door. Hello again. I'd say it was time for some refreshment. I wonder, why don't you knock on the door at number 11? Good afternoon, young sir and miss. I was just about to make some tea. Would you care to join me and partake a cup? What's happening? Everything seems different all of a sudden. Well now, don't dally. Come on in. I'm letting out the warmth from the fire. That wasn't there a moment ago. I get the feeling we've gone back in time. Everything looks the same. The chairs, the table, even the picture of Queen Victoria above the mantelpiece. Seems like there's a picture of the Queen in every house. And why would you not? The finest Queen we ever had. As a boy, I'd only ever see her on a penny. But now, thanks to the newspaper, look here, and their wonderful daguerreotypes, we can see her in all her glory. Daguerreotype? What's that? Oh, of course. They call them photographic images these days. But do you know, I was once lucky enough to see Queen Victoria with my own eyes. Wow! Did you go to London? Far from it. The Queen came to Wolverhampton, right here in the Black Country on more than one occasion. It said the first time she came, she was only a child and found the dirt and fires to be so uncommonly distressing that she drew the curtains on the train she was travelling in. Oh, but later in her life, she returned and in much better cheer. If I recall rightly, it was 
November 1866. I must have been a lad of, what, 17. It was just a few years after her dear Prince Albert had died. She hadn't been seen in public for years and some thought she too may have died. But now, because the people of Wolverhampton had extended such kindness to the Queen in her time of mourning, she accepted an invitation to unveil a statue. No other town had managed to gain a response such as this, so you can imagine the excitement. What was the statue of? Prince Albert, of course. The Queen's great love and the reason for her to be in mourning for so long. The statue was made by Thomas Thornycroft and cost over a thousand pounds, a very large sum of money. At the Queen's suggestion, Prince Albert was shown seated on his favourite horse on a large plinth in the town square. They made it a holiday and the streets were filled with thousands of people who came on trains from all sorts of places. It was a grand sight. The royal coaches were waiting outside the station as the Queen's train arrived. And as the Queen, the Princesses and John Brown, her trusty servant, appeared, we could hear the royal salute and then the bells rang out from St Peter's and the hussars played the national anthem. The procession weaved through the town. Mother and father and my brothers and I squeezed in the throng of Darlington Street. We were not a rich family and our celebrations tended to be modest even at Christmas. So to have such pomp and ceremony, it was like something from a dream. I shall never forget the finery and the glimpse of Her Majesty we had before she turned towards High Green. That's why the picture of Her Majesty means so much to folk around here. Sounds so exciting. It said the Queen unveiled the statue and was so pleased she knighted the mayor on the spot. The fine folk, well, they had luncheon, then a banquet with fireworks that carried on into the night. Such was the occasion they changed the name of High Green to Queen Square. It sounds amazing. Definitely something to write home about. Funny enough, you're right. It was such a memorable day that when I was a little older, I thought it would make a tremendous bedtime story for my cousins. I wrote about the day on a paper bag from the general store. We didn't have money for fancy paper, you see. I then went to post it in the post box on the street. I've seen the post box. It's hexagonal, isn't it? Kind of a strange shape for a post box. I was so pleased with my story of the event, I nearly forgot the stamps in my haste to catch the postman. If you look carefully on the post box, you'll see the Royal Cipher. It's a very special post box that was made right here in Dudley by Cochrane Grove and Company. One of our most famous ironworks. Why not take a look at it for yourself? Good idea. Thanks for the tea. Wow. Where's he gone? We're back in the present right by the post box the old man was talking about. It's a great red colour. I wish I had something to post. Well... There you are, admiring the Penfold letterbox, I see. We found out about Queen Victoria's visit to the Black Country and how people were so excited. They wrote stories about it and sent it to family and friends. There's nothing quite like receiving a letter full of interesting things. I wonder what you would write about. What might have you have seen around here that would make a good story? I might write to Grant. Tell her about Queen Victoria's portrait. Whatever you write about, 
just don't forget the stamp. Okay, now it's time for the last part of the show where we answer some of your questions about the museum. Um, So... This week, uh, we have a question that is about clothing. And the question is, what is the strangest piece of clothing that you've seen at the time? Um, This person also goes on to say that they've seen that the Victorian clothes um, were a little bit strange compared to what we wear today. And I can confirm that that is the case, but I think that the strangest bit of clothing that I've seen on site uh, is actually in our 1930s street. And that's the the clothing store, uh, Morals. And the reason why I've chosen this one is because in the window uh, throughout the summer period, there is usually on display um, a piece of swimwear for men. And the reason why I've chosen this one as being strange is because it's not made of any material that we would normally associate with going swimming in. It's actually made of wool. So it is um, it is a vest and um, it's a one one piece swimming uh like a little bit like a wetsuit but it's completely made of wool so i don't think it did anything to protect you i don't think it did anything to keep you warm so i think it's a really bizarre thing to make to make a piece of swimming costume out of so our second question today um is all about hobbies um so obviously people in the past they would have had their hobbies um just like we do uh, just like we do today and this one um is really just what sorts of things did people do as hobbies in the black country? And I'm going to be kind to Nadia with this one. I'm going to say that she can choose what time period she wants to go with. (laughs) Very kind. (laughs) Um, Well, what I'm thinking about is a pigeon loft that's on our site. It's set in kind of late 1920s, 1930s. Mm -hmm. It belonged to a chap called Charles Perslow, and he was a pigeon fancier pretty much his whole life. I'm sorry, a what? Pigeon fancier. A pigeon fancier. Explain. (laughs) I guess if one liked racing pigeons, they were a pigeon hobbyist, they were a pigeon fancier. Fair enough. Yeah. I think they still are, in fact, actually. You can still call yourself one. I'd never heard that before. Then again, I don't have anything to do with pigeons, so absolutely, absolutely, that's fine. Go forth and get into pigeons just so you can declare yourself a pigeon fancier. (laughs) So, um, yeah, he had this loft. He called it Stonefield Lofts, and it's quite jazzy in its decor on the outside. It's like black and white. And black country pigeon lofts were known for being quite jazzy bits on the... um, Decorated with, full of personality, shall we say? Yeah. Yeah. Well, full of other stuff as well, inside, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> definitely full of personality. Um, but the reason we got on to Charles Perslow recently is because for our summer event, we're looking for ways that the people helped one another. Yeah. And I was looking at charity and I came across this wonderful headline in a local newspaper newspaper it was pigeons assist charity and i just wondered what was going on there so uh, basically in 1933 there was this big race from um it started at the house of commons actually and two local mps went released the pigeons and off they went to help raise funds for um the neverton carnival yeah 
Sorry. Nice. Fantastic. Pigeons helping charity. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Nadia. And actually, that does bring us to the end of our episode today. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. Um, if you do want to find out more about Black Country Museum, then please do head to our website, um, bclm.co.uk. Uh, if you do have any questions for us, as well then uh, feel free to get in touch you can leave them on our facebook page um, and we are absolutely dying to hear from you so thank you very much for listening anyone and we'll see you next time Mm -hmm.